LearnOutLoud.com presents the Philosophy Podcast. Here we will periodically showcase audio renditions of great works from philosophers such as Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Nietzsche, and more. For more educational audio and video, please visit our website at www.LearnOutLoud.com. The Ethics by Baruch Spinoza Published in 1677 Edited by Arthur Mee and J. A. Hamerton 1. Concerning God By God, I understand absolutely infinite being, that is, substance consisting of infinite attributes, each expressing internal and definite essence. If this be denied, conceive if it be possible that God does not exist. Then it follows that his essence does not involve existence, which is absurd. Therefore God necessarily exists. God is absolutely the first cause, he acts from the laws of his own nature only, and is compelled by no one. For outside of himself, there can be nothing by which he may be determined to act. Therefore he acts solely from the laws of his own nature, and therefore also God alone is a free cause. The omnipotence of God has been actual from eternity, and will be actual from eternity. The divine intellect is the cause of things, both of their essence and of their existence. Thus it is the cause both of the essence and of the existence of the human intellect, but it differs from our intellect both in essence and existence. The same may be said of the divine will and the human will. The will cannot be called a free cause, but can only be termed necessary. The will is only a certain mode of thought, like the intellect. It requires a cause to determine it to action, and therefore cannot be called a free cause, but only a necessary cause. Hence it follows that God does not act from the freedom of the will, for the will, like all other things, needs a cause to determine it to act in a certain manner. Things could have been produced by God in no other manner or order than that in which they have been. Things have been created by God in absolute perfection, because they have necessarily followed from His absolutely perfect nature. The Divine Power and Decree Since in eternity there is no when nor before, nor after, God cannot decree, nor could he have ever decreed, anything other than he has decreed in the perfection of his nature. For if he had decreed something else about creation, he would necessarily have had an intellect and a will different from those he now has. Could such a supposition be allowed, why cannot he now change his decree about creation, yet remain perfect? All things depend on the divine power, but God's will, because of his perfection, cannot be other than it is, and therefore things cannot be differently constituted. For to suppose otherwise is to subject God to fate, an absurdity which is not worth waste of time to refute. The sum of the matter is that God necessarily exists, that he is one God, that he acts from the necessity of his nature, and he is the free cause of all things, that all things depend on him, and that all things have been predestined by him. 2. Concerning mind. I pass on to those things which must necessarily follow from the essence of the eternal and infinite God. Thought is the attribute of God. Individual thoughts are modes expressing the nature of God in a certain and determinate manner. The order and connection of these ideas coincides with the order and connection of things. Therefore, God's power of thinking is equal to his power of acting. The circle existing in nature and the idea of an existing circle which is also in God, are one and the same thing, exhibited through different attributes. 
God is truly the cause of things as they are in themselves, in so far as He consists of infinite attributes. The first thing which forms the actual being of the human mind is nothing else than the idea of an individual actually existing. The essence of man is formed by certain modes of the divine attributes, that is to say, modes of thought. The idea is the first thing which forms the being of the human mind. It must be an idea of an individual thing actually existing. Hence, the human mind is part of the infinite intellect of God. The knowledge of everything which happens necessarily exists in God, in so far as He forms the nature of the human mind. Man thinks. Modes of thought, such as love, desire, or affections of the mind, under whatever designation, do not exist unless, in the same individual, exists an idea of a thing loved, desired, etc. But the idea may exist, though no other mode of thinking exists. Therefore, the essence of man does not necessarily involve existence. We perceive that a body is affected in certain ways. No individual things are felt or perceived by us except bodies and modes of thought. The object of the idea constituting the human mind is a body or a certain mode of actually existing extension, and nothing else. For if the body were not the object of the human mind, the ideas of the affections of the body would not be in God, in so far as He created our mind. But would be in him, in so far as he has formed the mind of another being. But we have ideas of the affections of the body. Therefore, the object of the idea constituting the human mind is the body actually existing. It follows then that man consists of mind and body, and that the human body exists as we perceive it. Mind and body. Hence, we perceive not only that the human mind is united to the body. But also what it is to be understood by the union of the mind and body, but no one can adequately comprehend it without previously possessing adequate knowledge of the body. In proportion as one body is better adapted than another to act or suffer, the mind will at the same time be better adapted for perception, and the more independent a body may be of other bodies, the stronger will be the understanding of the mind. Thus, we can determine the superiority of one mind over another. All bodies are either moving or resting. Every body moves sometimes slowly, sometimes quickly. Bodies are distinguished from each other by degrees of motion and quiescence, not with regard to substance. All bodies agree in some aspects. Bodies affect each other in motion and rest. Each individual thing must necessarily be determined as to motion or rest by some other thing. The human body needs for its preservation many other bodies by which it is, as it were, regenerated. The human mind increases its aptitude in proportion to the number of ways in which the body can be disposed. The idea constituting a formal being of the human mind is not simple, but is highly complex. An idea of each component part of the body must necessarily exist in God. The human mind does not know the human body itself, nor does it know that the human body exists, except through the ideas and affections by which the body is affected. Indeed. The human mind is the very idea or knowledge of the human body. These ideas are in God. Thought is an attribute of God, and so the thought of the mind originates of necessity in Him. All the ideas which are in God always agree with those things of which they are ideas, and therefore they are all true. Falsity consists in privation of knowledge, involved in confusion and mutilation of ideas. For instance, because they think themselves to be free. And the sole reason of this opinion is that they are conscious of their own actions and ignorant of the causes determining these actions.
Nobody knows what the will is and how it moves today. Those who pretend otherwise and invent locations of the soul usually excite derision and disgust. When we look at the sun and imagine it to be immensely nearer to us than it actually is, the error arises from the manner in which the essence of the sun affects the body, not merely from the exercise of the imagination. Mutual Influences The more things the body possesses in common with other bodies, the more things will the mind be adapted to perceive. The human mind possesses an adequate knowledge of the eternal and infinite essence of God. But the reason why men have not a knowledge of God as clear as that which they have of common notions is that they cannot imagine God as they can imagine bodies, and because they have attached the name of God to the images of things they are accustomed to see. This they can hardly avoid, because they are constantly affected by external bodies, and indeed most errors arise from our application to the wrong names of things. But if someone says that the lines drawn from the center to the circumference of a circle are unequal, it is because he understands by a circle something different from what we understand by the mathematicians. I did not reckon a man to be in error, who I recently heard complaining that his court has flown into one of his neighbor's fowls, for I understand what he meant. In the mind there is no absolutely free will. The mind is determined to this or that volition by a cause, which is determined by another cause, and so ad infinitum. The will and intellect are one and the same. We are partakers of the divine nature in proportion as we more and more understand God and conform our actions to His will. Our highest happiness consists in this conformity, by which alone the soul finds repose. Those greatly err from the true estimate of virtue who expect to be rewarded for it, as though virtue in service of God were our felicity itself and the highest liberty. 3. Concerning Mental Affections The actions of the mind arise from adequate ideas alone, but the passions depend on those alone which are inadequate. The essence of the mind is composed of adequate and inadequate ideas. Joy is a passion by which the mind passes to a greater degree of perfection. Sorrow is a passion by which it passes to a lesser degree. Accidentally, anything may be the cause of joy, sorrow, or desire. We love or hate certain things, not from any known cause, but merely from sympathy or antipathy. If we hate a thing, we seek to affirm concerning it everything that we think can affect it with sorrow while we deny everything that we think can affect it with joy. From this we see how easily a man may think too much of himself and of the object which he loves, and on the other hand, may think too little of what he hates. When a man thinks too much of himself, this imagination is termed pride, and is a species of delirium, because he dreams with his eyes open that he can do all things to which he attains in imagination alone, regarding them thus as realities, and rejoicing in them so long as he cannot imagine anything to exclude their existence and limit his power of action. If we imagine that a person loves, desires, or hates a thing which we love, desire, or hate, we shall on that account love, desire, or hate the thing more intensely. If, on the other hand, we imagine that he is averse to the thing we love, or loves the thing to which we are averse, then we shall suffer vacillation of mind. Hence everyone strives to the utmost to induce others to love what he loves, and to hate what he hates. This effort is called ambition, which prompts each person to desire that others should live according to his way of thinking. But if all thus act, then all hinder each other. And if all wish to be praised or loved by all, then all hate one another. Joy is a man's passage from a less to a greater perfection. Sorrow is a man's passage 
from a greater to a less perfection. I say passage, for joy is not perfection itself. If a man were born with the perfection to which he passes, he would possess it without the affection of joy, a truth the more vividly apparent from the affection of sorrow, which is the contrary of joy. For that sorrow consists in the passage to a less perfection, but not in the less perfection itself, no one can deny, since in so far as a man partakes of any perfection, he cannot be sad. Nor can we say that sorrow consists in the passage to a less perfection, for privation is nothing. But the affection of sorrow is actual, and so can be nothing else than the passage to a lesser perfection, that is, the reality by which the power of acting is limited or diminished. As for the definitions of cheerfulness, pleasurable excitement, melancholy, or grief, I omit these because they are related rather to the body than to the mind, and are merely different species of joy and sorrow. Love is joy with the accompanying idea of an external cause. Hatred is sorrow with the accompanying idea of an external cause. Devotion is love towards an object which we admire and wonder at. Derision is joy arising from the imagination that something we despise is present in the object we hate. Hope is a joy not constant, arising from the idea of something future or past, about the issue of which we are doubtful. Fear is sorrow not constant, arising in like manner. Confidence is joy arising from the idea of a past or future object from which the cause for doubting has been removed. Despair is sorrow arising from a like cause. Confidence springs from hope, despair from fear. Pride is thinking too highly of ourselves from self-love. Despondency is thinking too little of ourselves through sorrow. 4. Concerning Human Bondage and Human Liberty Good is that which is useful to us, evil that which impedes the possession of good. But the terms good and evil are not positive, but are only modes of thought by which we compare one thing with another. Thus music is good to a melancholy mind, bad to a mourning mind, but neither good nor bad to a deaf man. We suffer because we form a part of nature. The power by which we preserve our being is the power of God, that is, part of His essence. But man is subject to passions because he follows the order of nature. An affection can only be overcome by stronger affection. That which tends to conserve our existence, we denominate good. That which hinders this conservation, we style evil. Desire springing from the knowledge of good and evil can be restrained by desires originating in the affections by which we are agitated. Thus, the effect of external causes on the mind may be far greater than that of the knowledge of good and evil. The desire springing from a knowledge of good and evil may be easily restrained by the desire of present objects. Opinion exercises a more potent influence than reason. Hence the saying of the poet, I approve the better, but follow the worse. And hence also the preacher says, He that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. We ought to know both the strength and the weakness of our nature, that we may judge what reason can and cannot do in controlling our affections. Desire springing from joy preponderates over that springing from sorrow. Man is useful to man because two individuals of the same nature, when in sympathy, are stronger than one. Nothing could be so good for men as that all should so agree in everything as to form, as it were, a single body and mind, all seeking the good of all. Hence men acting in accord with the dictates of reason desire nothing for themselves but what they desire for all. This renders them just, faithful, and honorable. The knowledge of God is the supreme mental good, and to know God is the supreme mental virtue. 
For God is the supreme subject of the understanding, and therefore to know or understand God is the supreme virtue of the mind. But to us nothing can be either good or evil unless it has something in common with us. An object whose nature is absolutely foreign to our own cannot be either good or evil to us for this reason, that we only call a thing good or evil when it is the cause of joy or sorrow, that is to say, when it increases or diminishes our power to act. Nothing can be reckoned good except that which is in harmony with our nature, and nothing can be reckoned evil except what is contrary to our nature. But men cannot be said to agree in nature when they are subject to passion. We can only act in harmony with the dictates of reason when we agree in nature with others. Men are most useful to each other who are mutually ruled by the laws of reason, but rarely do men live thus in harmony with reason, and thus it comes to pass that they are commonly envious of each other. Yet men are seldom disposed to solitude, but answer generally to the familiar description of man as a social animal, for they know that the advantages preponderate over the advantages of social life. They find by experience that by mutual aid and cooperation they can, on the one hand, the more easily secure what they need, and on the other hand, the better defend themselves from danger. A man who seeks after virtue will desire others to do so, and this desire will increase in proportion to this increase of his knowledge of God. The good that a man seeks by the quest of virtue, he will wish others to obtain also. This is in accordance with reason, which is the operation of the mind according to the essence of the mind, that essence of the mind being knowledge, which involves the knowledge of God. The greater the knowledge of God involved in the essence of the mind, the greater will be the desire that others may seek after the same virtue which the man seeks for himself.